Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Historical Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Roger Daniels about his new two-volume biography of Franklin Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, Road to the New Deal, and Franklin D. Roosevelt, The War Years. Roger, welcome to the show. Thank you. Roger, I was wondering if you could begin the interview by telling us a little about... Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Historical Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Roger Daniels about his new two-volume biography of Franklin Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, Road to the New Deal, and Franklin D. Roosevelt, The War Years. Roger, welcome to the show. Thank you. Roger, I was wondering if you could begin the interview by telling us a little about yourself. I'm 87 years old. I served in the Korean War, finished my education at the University of California at Los Angeles in 1960, uh, went on to teach at a number of universities and for the last almost 30 years of my teaching career, which ended in 2002, I taught at the University of Cincinnati, where I for a while was chair of the history department. Uh, In retirement, uh, I have been living in Bellevue, Washington. close to my two grandchildren, where I wrote most of the FDR book, which I started thinking about very early in my career. Yes, I was noticing, as you mentioned in the uh, beginning of the first volume, that this is a project with a very long genesis and one in which you've had contact with uh, many individuals who are mentioned in the book and also many historians who have themselves written uh, one or several volumes about Franklin Roosevelt. That's right. It's been a, it's been a long process, uh, a learning process, and a learning process that continued as I did the final researching and then the writing of the book itself. Uh, the uh, result at the end was somewhat different from what I would imagine, what I had imagined it would be, when I began the book. In the middle of the process, uh, as I was trying to grapple with how do you deal with this complicated, long, much written about life, uh, I read a brilliant book about letters written to Roosevelt. Liked it very, very much. And then shortly after I finished it, what I call my inner light bulb flashed on and I said, gee, good book about letters written to Roosevelt. What about the other end of that? Why don't I just concentrate on things that Roosevelt read and said himself? No way you can cover all of the documents that exist. This will be a way of, of focusing on the man and his time. Because what I wanted to show, in particular, 
with how Roosevelt dealt with problems that are relevant in the 21st century, uh, more than 50 years after his death. Hmm. Uh, and I definitely want to, I, I, I noticed when in the book you do talk about that process of writing and communication, and you uh, reference not just his famous speeches, but also some statements that he's made, which have uh, often gone overlooked or are uh, at the very least glossed over, and also communications with individuals, both reporters and people in his inner circle that he spoke with. Yes, it's uh, it, it's difficult to, to pick and choose from among these things. Uh, I'm not always sure I made the right choices, uh, but I hope that I've given people a picture of a very complex and often misunderstood man. Many of his biographers, being trained in Ivy League institutions uh, largely, have underrated Roosevelt's basic intelligence uh, simply because he wasn't particularly interested when he went to Harvard in making good grades. He was interesting in having, interested in having all kinds of experiences. It was, he was, it was a part of his growing up. And he continued. What's really remarkable about him is that he continued as an adult, as the governor of New York, as the president of the United States, in being tutored by experts in this or that field, whether it's hydroelectric power, which greatly concerned him and his governorship of New York, or Keynesian economics, which greatly troubled him in 1937 when he made a <laughs> bending mistake and uh, had to eventually relearn what he knew and about economics. Uh, and that's remarkable. Very few people, particularly successful people, uh, are able to reorient themselves uh, late in life. And, and he certainly did so. That's just, that's just one aspect of uh, what made him a successful president. His flexibility of mind, his willing to absorb new ideas. And his, his, and his, ability, his ability to listen and to notice what's going on. Uh, Roosevelt had a great sense of the potential in people. Abraham Lincoln famously uh, spent much of the Civil War looking for a general. Roosevelt found almost all of his generals before there was a war. Almost everyone who had a major role in military leadership was chosen by him before the United States went into war uh, and often reaching well down on the chain of command for George C. Marshall and others. In addition, uh, more than any other allied leader, he was aware of the potential of air, much more so than his major military advisors. And he was never, although he had good advisors and followed their advice on many occasions, he always, he was always willing 
to overrule them if he thought it necessary. And many of the most important decisions of the war made by him were made against the advice of his major military advisors. Although he did not interfere with tactical decisions, strategic decisions, overall planning, that was his metier and he knew it. I'd like to return to that uh, a little bit later in the interview. Uh, what I'd like to do for the moment, though, is to go back to talking a little bit about his uh, upbringing, his early years. Your biography is focused on his public career, but I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit on what brought him into a public career. What, how did he start out? Uh, what led him into public service and some of the early offices in which he served and how they shaped him? Well, he was all he was born into it almost. He was a member of uh, the patrician class of the, of the lower Hudson River Valley. His father was the squire of Hyde Park, uh, or one of them. He was born to a role in the community. He accepted that role, ran for a local office, a minor local office as, as an assemblyman in the state, uh, as, a, as a state senator in the New York State Assembly, he was the first Democrat elected in many, many years, ran ahead of the ticket. And of course, his cousin, Theodore Roosevelt, became president of the United States early in his life, when Roosevelt was 18 years old. Uh, and, and Theodore Roosevelt, as president, they did not have many close relationships, but they did have a relationship, and it was all—it was a tremendous relationship for Roosevelt. Uh, it gave him something to achieve. Well, led him yes, to sir. believe early in his life. Shortly after he passed the bar and had a minor clerkship in a New York City law firm, a clerkship that only a rich young man could take because for the first year there was no salary at all. And in that clerkship, in his early 20s, his colleagues surviving him remembered and put into the record that back in those days he had explained to them that uh, he was not going to be in law in, in the law firm long, that he was going to go back up home to Hyde Park, the family home where he was born and where he is buried and get into politics and go into the state legislature and get elected, get elected governor of New York. He says, that's a, that's a, an ambition I can easily reach. And you know, anybody who's elected governor of New York, several had gone on to be president can be president of the United States. And that's what I would like to do. And one of those colleagues uh, remembered in his obituary that he wrote for the Harvard Crimson, Franklin Roosevelt, it seemed to us, the law clerk, the former law clerk said, that that was a reasonable ambition. It didn't seem to us extravagant at the time. Now, that's remarkable. Indeed. Now, what's even more remarkable is that he not only achieved that, 
that achieved that in spite of suffering a dreadful attack of polio, emerging from it a paraplegic who would never walk again, a disease that was well known, but in which he was able to represent himself as having been cured to a degree that he could walk. But that was a deception. Roosevelt could not walk. Uh, He could not move his legs at all. Uh, You can't walk without bending your knees, and Roosevelt could only stand up if he was locked into braces, which prevented him from bending his knees. So he just couldn't, he, he simply could not walk. He had no control over the, his lower extremities. Uh, and very few of the millions of Americans who voted for him had any idea that he was a paraplegic. They looked at him as a cured victim of polio, who had obviously limited ability to to move around. Uh, I was thinking about so many of the political cartoons that you see of him in the 1930s, 1940s. They oftentimes depict him as walking, striding, running, which really... And the press cooperated by not not only by concealing it, but by using those words, he walked to the podium, he strode to this. Uh, so it was a deception, and a deception in which there was a great deal of cooperation. Nobody bribed them to do so. It was a, a time when alcoholism among uh, politicians, which is pr- common, uh, it was never discussed in newspapers. Uh, uh, sexual indiscretions, which occurred then and now, were never referred to. Uh, it was a different era. I was thinking about that in your discussion of Sumner Wells in Volume 2 and the attitudes about homosexuality that existed then and how when Sumner Wells was forced out as undersecretary of state, you had that similar unwillingness to even discuss in to most people why he was leaving. No, I mean, that, that could not be done, but it's, it, it's, it must be noted that Roosevelt himself wanted to continue Wells. Uh, and, and, uh, it was made clear to everyone that there were people in the government and in the press who were going to expose him if he did not resign. So he resigned and Roosevelt lost uh, a foreign policy advisor. This is in the midst of this, in the midst of the second world war at a time when he, he badly needed uh, foreign policy advisors. Uh, And there's an interesting example of how the threat of making it public was enough to bring an end to a career. Yeah, it it it, it could not be maintained uh, once it had been brought out. But it but it but it was never described in the press. No one ever the word homosexual was never used there. Uh, 
and even when there were stories about homosexual about persons who were homosexual, the word would not appear in the press. Now you mentioned that he comes down with polio, and he does this in the midst of his political career. He just, you know, ran unsuccessfully for vice president of the United States, and a year later he uh, suffers from polio. How does he go from that point of coming down with this debilitating disease to winning the presidency in 1932? Well, you have to remember that he's a rich, powerful man with powerful associates who arrange to get him from Maine. He's was stricken on Campobello, which is an island off Maine, but but is really Canadian territory, where the family had a what they called a cottage with twenty bedrooms. <laughs> he goes home in a private car. Uh, the doctors cooperate. Uh, the press cooperates, and he's treated as a uh, cured polio patient. Uh, it's what one uh, one writer called a splendid deception, and it was that. Uh, but he also works to stage manage it, such as in 1924 when he makes a point of going to the convention and being seated in the New York delegation. Yeah, but, but, but you have to remember that, as I show, in 1924, Roosevelt was merely Al Smith's campaign manager in 1928. And he was seen using crutches and described in the press as using crutches. But later, when he's running for president, he's a a cured polio patient. That wasn't true. He was no more fit in 1932 than he had been in 1928. But once he became governor of New York, he gets special treatment from the press. And once he becomes president, and once he becomes the nominee for the presidency, uh, there's not the kind of microscope turned on him as would be turned on today. Uh, the press knows very, very well that he can't walk. They, they print statements in the press that describe him as walking. And people seeing him at a distance got the impression that he could walk. He was always surrounded by one or two very strong men, sometimes his sons, Uh, as president uh, by his military aides, all of whom had to be very husky, and be able to move him, to assist him, to assist him in appearing to walk. And he did so. It was a a deception uh, that was kept up at all times. What fascinates me especially is that it's kept up not just by the press, but his opponents never make any real mention of it or make an issue of it. No, they don't. 
So when he becomes governor in 1928, it was a little premature by his own plans, wasn't it? Well, yes, but it was uh, it was an unfortunate uh, accident, uh, an unplanned decision that his campaign manager Louis Howe uh, opposed. But it's now clear that if Roosevelt had not ex- not accepted the pressure from Al Smith to run to succeed Smith as governor while Smith was running for president. Smith lost and Roosevelt won narrowly. Smith lost in New York as well. Roosevelt uh, ran ahead of, the, ahead of the Democratic ticket as he always did when he ran. Uh, had he not done so, uh, and thus been in place as governor when the Great Depression hit, uh, it's not clear that he would have been able to gain the nomination in 1932 in the midst of the depths of the Great Depression uh, if he had not established himself not only by being elected in 1928, but by being reelected with a much larger majority in 1930, uh, which gave him a platform to comment on the Depression, to demonstrate that he in New York could do more about the Depression, at least in New York, than Herbert Hoover could, that he had a real program. Uh, And had he not made that decision, it's very difficult to imagine him as ever becoming president of the United States. that gets into, of course, hypothetical history. But it, it, it is difficult to, to write a, a scenario of Roosevelt being a private citizen when the Depression strikes, managing to get into office because he would have had to run for something, probably governor of New York, uh, again in 1930. But to win as governor of New York when there was great economic pressure, uh, the pressure would have been to to elect a businessman. That's what, uh, that was the, uh, and, and Roosevelt certainly was, whatever else he was, was not a businessman. <laughs> you mentioned uh, that the governorship of New York gave him a uh, platform from which to respond to the uh, Great Depression. And I was wondering if you could speak a little about that response. I mean, was the uh, his governorship a laboratory for the New Deal? Was he working out those policies, or was his governorship uh, something else? It was certainly not a laboratory for the New Deal, and of course, there uh, the notion that Roosevelt came to the White House with a kind of plan is absolute nonsense. Uh, the great stress on the hundred days. The important thing about the 100 days of his presidency, I'm hopping, was that that was when he grabbed the attention of the American people and convinced them that he was a leader. But he had no program. I remember 
you, you highlight the economics. He had to learn and learn the hard way. He explained that they were going to try things, and if they didn't work, he was going to try something else. And that's the history of the New Deal. He uh, appointed a very, very different kind of cabinet that was largely effective. Uh, and again, his, cab- his, his choice was not always correct. Uh, some cabinet members were forced upon him by political situations, but he picked an extraordinary group of people to support him from a variety of sources. Uh, a former social work executive, Harry Hopkins, a woman in his cabinet, uh, Frances Perkins, who'd been worked with him in, in New York, uh, Henry Wallace, uh, a former Republican, uh, the Secretary of Agriculture, Harold Ickes, a progressive maverick, a lawyer and politician from Chicago without a national reputation, uh, became uh, Secretary of the Interior, uh, and managed a number of Roosevelt's programs, uh, was responsible for much of the construction, uh, stayed with Roosevelt, stayed on into Truman. Uh, again, his, 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 his ability to choose, to lead, and to inspire those who he chose to follow what he wanted them to do uh, was remarkable. Uh, management of persons, because he managed women as well as men, was one of Roosevelt's greatest attributes. He inspired loyalty in his subordinates and gave them, in many cases, free reign. He did not try to micromanage people unless there was a crisis and he had to move in and change things. And then he would micromanage. But one of the things, uh, his, uh, his skills as a, an executive, as a manager of men and women was extraordinary. And this, and yet this latitude that he grants uh, his uh, cabinet secretaries, uh, sits also alongside his reorganization of the executive branch. And that's something that you spend uh, a considerable amount of space discussing at the beginning of the second volume. I was wondering if you could, if you could, in a sense, reconcile the two and explain the significance of that reorganization. Well, Roosevelt understood how the government worked. Uh, Some of it was instinctive, but much of it was simply hard work, study, and imagination. And he quite often could solve the problems that his subordinates could not solve. Uh, When Francis Perkins, for example, as Secretary of Labor, who was then responsible for immigration, had problems with trying to deal with 
those refugees from Hitler, this is in the middle of the 30s, uh, who had who had come here as visitors on six-month visas. And these visas were expiring. And Congress had passed a strict immigration law. And it was very there was uh, she could see no way out. And Roosevelt explained to her, Francis, uh, there's a provision in the law which means that you can ex that once those six months visas have been issued, you have the authority as Secretary of Labor to extend them for another six months and continue to do so as long as you deem it appropriate. And she had not realized that and went on to do it. Roosevelt could find a way. And what he did in the Reorganization Act is to set up a system. This is after he saw war as all but inevitable, something he never admitted publicly. So he envisaged a system, a way to run much of the war by executive order. And he reorganized the government so that he would have control within something he created, the executive office of the presidency, which gave him a great deal of flexibility in in managing and micromanaging uh, the various special and emergency defense and war measures and organizations that were developed. Uh, what developed was sometimes called in the press and by historians as that mess in Washington. Well, somehow or other, that mess in Washington managed to win the war and <laughs> turn out the, that incredible amount of war materials uh, what Stalin described as machines for war that made the American military literally invincible. That that, that farsightedness is something that uh, brings up one of the other themes that you return to throughout both volumes, which is the degree to which uh, Franklin Roosevelt was very future-oriented. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon that, especially with regard to uh, not just the New Deal, but also that growing focus upon what was happening in the world as his second term uh, wore on. Yes, well, Roosevelt Roosevelt had a uh, an experience with Woodrow Wilson, who he served as assistant secretary, but he and Wilson for most of the administration had relatively little to do with one another, although he tended to magnify what experience there was. But he, he was at, coming back from, Bears, from the Paris Peace Conference on, on the ship with Wilson and had some dinners with him and meetings with him, and, and those meetings changed his life uh, and changed his view. He had been a very much a war hawk 
And he bought into Wilson's idea of the League of Nations, which had be, which became, by the time he was president, and by the time he was ready to run for president, very unpopular. The, the country went very strongly isolationist in the 20s, and Roosevelt, as a politician, had to recognize that. So he tactically uh, stopped supporting the League of Nations. He, what he said was, uh, it's become something that, that Wilson did not envisage. But he himself continued to be an internationalist, and his really future-oriented war aims, uh, something that Roosevelt had not yet made clear to the general public, was revealed to me, at least, when I read a number of short talks he gave late in the war to soldiers that he was talking to at various places in Europe and Africa, at the conferences in places like Casablanca, Yalta, and Tehran. He gave talks to the soldiers, and what he talked about was his overall international goal. He says, you know, we can't, he couldn't make or, or ensure peace for all time. But he said he'd like to have there be no more world wars. If he could arrange for that during the lives of our grandchildren, he'd consider himself a great success. He says no one couldn't possibly plan beyond that. And uh, he pretty well accomplished it. There was a Cold War. We, we fought some terrible wars, but not a world war. And a, a war, a world war in the atomic age, which Roosevelt created against the advice of his associates, his personal chief of staff. Staff Admiral Leahy assured Roosevelt, as an expert in explosives, the atomic bomb would not work well. <laughs> of course, he, he didn't take that advice. Uh, it's possible to wish that he hadn't, but uh, that isn't possible. So we have to make the best of it. Of course, when he's seeing this, uh, you know, future and he's setting up these goals, America is still at peace. The wars begin in Asia in 1937, in Europe in 1939, and the United States is formally out of both. What, how does the United States go under his leadership from that position of neutrality? to entering the war uh, in, by, in 1941? Well, of course, the United States didn't enter the war. The war entered the United States. <laughs> uh, he'd been 
But there was a long undeclared war in the North Atlantic in which the American Navy helped the British Navy and was instrumental in the British Navy's relative success in keeping down the submarine threat. And both Roosevelt and Hitler, neither of whom really wanted to go to war, believed that war was going to come, and it would come by some command, some naval officer on one side or the other instituting hostilities. Of course, that's not what happened. What happened was that Japan, neither Roosevelt nor Hitler, had any idea was going to attack the United States. Roosevelt realized that the Japanese were aggressive, but he assumed that their aggression was going to be limited in Asia and knew that he might eventually have to do something about it. But his formal strategy for World War II was Hitler first, because Hitler was the major threat to the world. And I think that was a, an accurate appraisal. But Pearl Harbor changed everything. Uh, and Roosevelt no longer uh, had to pretend that he wasn't really at war. He was already arming Britain, beginning to help arm the Soviet Union, uh, making plans for an army and a navy of a size appropriate for defeating Hitler and Japan. And that buildup was on the way and then well, well in process uh, on December 7th, 1941. Uh, Roosevelt and Hitler were both surprised uh, by the Japanese uh, attack. Uh, the notion that Roosevelt had any knowledge or inkling of, of what Japan was going to do is uh, not based on any discernible evidence. One of the points you make in the chapters about the uh, events leading up to the war is how, by the measures of the time, public opinion was solidly behind Franklin Roosevelt. You, you quote polls noting that uh, anywhere from two-thirds to over 70% of the public was in support of his policies, in support of his orientation, uh, and, and that really it seemed he was mostly having to deal with Congress's uh, reluctance, the, the, the isolationists and, uh, in Congress in, in terms of their difference of opinion with him about that policy. Well, it's a, you know, it, um, voter, voter, voters like other people are peculiar. Uh, large numbers of voters voted for Roosevelt and for congressmen in both parties who were isolationists and did not see uh, any contradiction in this. Uh, Roosevelt had incredible charisma, was an effective not just campaigner, because he didn't campaign in the normal way, but he was an incredible persuader 
of the American people. And he used particularly, but not solely, uh, the radio as a way to address people. I mean, his fireside chats were more popular than any single radio program. Uh, when Roosevelt was on the air for a major address, for a major talk, people listened. And they were always programmed at good listening times. Uh, Sunday evening was one of the, was one of the classic ones when American families, uh, generally sat around, uh, large numbers of them at least, uh, listening to the radio anyway. So it was a normal time to do so. Uh, late enough to catch the late, the West Coast people, uh, after dinner, early enough to the East Coast folk that most of the East Coast, East Coast folks had not yet gone to bed. Uh, uh, the timing was always precise always well advertised every newspaper in the country daily newspaper would would, would print uh, a day or two before the fact that Roosevelt was going to talk at such and such a time and, and this highlights the point you make at the beginning of the books about just how important his words are yes uh, not only and 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 the way that he read those words, uh, he talked slowly, he talked convincingly, uh, he had uh, a unique accent, people like to, to copy it, uh, and couldn't quite do so. Uh, recent television program uh, which had wonderful footage about Roosevelt. Uh, just, I don't know why they did it. Uh, had an actor imitate Roosevelt, and the imitation was so inferior to the recordings that we have uh, that it makes one wonder. But that's something else again. <laughs> and, and they were very much his words. I, I, it, in volume one, you describe uh, how Samuel Rosenman, who became one of his uh, major speechwriters, uh, would draft speeches for him during his 1928 gubernatorial run. And Roosevelt didn't just simply give the speeches that were handed to him. He sat there and reworked them so that they were genuinely his words. Yeah, well, this is... Uh, uh this is true, and he not only participated in making the speeches, but time and again, at the last minute, he would make an ad lib, a change. Uh, one of the most important ad libs was in his message to the American people on the on Pearl Harbor evening. Uh, we we now we speak of that and now as the date of infamy speech, but uh, infamy was written into the speech at the last minute. There's a 
he had made a reference to history, to live in history. Well, everybody says that. Uh, but uh, the date of infamy uh, was a Roosevelt speech, and it's uh, a word and a phrase that uh, is one of the best remembered. But it was a last-minute edition. Uh, the first line of the first inaugural was ad-libbed. This is a day of national consecration. And one of the things that impressed me most when I thought about books all done, when I went through it again, was just how many religious phrases there were in Roosevelt's speech. Not phrases of doctrine or this sort of thing, but phrases indicating faith and trust in God. Uh, it's one of the one of the least understood Roosevelt assets was the fact that large numbers of people identified Roosevelt with the defense of their religion, whatever religion it was. Roosevelt was a non-sectarian believer, at least in terms of the of what he presented to the public. Uh, and uh, at a time when religious faith, by all the evidence that we have, was much more was much heavier than it is today. That was an incredible asset that none of his political opponents uh, could catalyze, could capitalize on, or counteract effectively. I'd like to focus uh, for just a minute on his role in the war itself. Uh, what was, what did he do in terms of managing the war effort and what did he do in terms of managing the country during the war? Well, he first of all made the basic strategic decisions. We're going to, these are made mostly after 1940. Uh, we haven't talked about the whole question of the third term. And we can not be sure when Roosevelt decided to run for a third term. I, I do not think, and I think most scholars do not think, that he always planned to, to, to run for extra terms. There's every evidence that he expected well into 1939 and maybe as late as early 1940 to go back to Hyde Park and write his memoirs when a new president was inaugurated in January of 1941. That, of course, didn't happen. Sometime after 
the war changed from a phony war to a blitzkrieg, which saw Hitler overrun France, which had been the great allied bulwark in World War One, and totally changed the nature of the war. Uh, that is, I'm convinced, when Roosevelt, sometime in 1940, when Roosevelt uh, decided that he was going to run for president again. That would be May and June of 1940. Somewhere. Uh, maybe... It may have been as early. It may have been as early as uh, as, as as April because uh, much had happened then. But but May and June are are quite clear. Uh-huh. So after that, it was a done thing. Although Roosevelt did not admit this until publicly until much much later in the year, very very late in the year, uh, and. Uh, one of the great differences in politics is that uh, in politics then and now is that the the real election period uh, was, was relatively short. Uh, the idea that of, a, of an almost perpetual campaign, uh, an idea that uh, some people are writing that the whole, that the whole thing is over this year, and the conventions haven't even taken place. Uh, that was it. Roosevelt never campaigned uh, until well after Labor Day. Roosevelt's campaigns, thorough and devastating as they were, uh, began uh, very, very late. But he was a perpetual campaigner. He was always thinking about the next election, whether for himself for the Democratic Party. But I think that until fairly late in the first half of 1940, uh, he knew he would have to run the president and did so successfully. And then, of course, he goes on to run for a fourth term in 1944. But by that time, it's not an issue. I mean, the war is on. Uh, Don't change horses in the middle of a stream. Uh, The 1944 election was uh, uh, was foreordained. Nobody, nobody expected it. It it, it was nobody. Nobody expected him not to run. It was. It was not an issue. Even though by that point he was suffering uh, from some terrible health problems. Well, that's true. Uh, I think if there had been an honest disclosure of his health problems, uh, the results of the 1940 election, 44 election, could have been very could have been very different. Uh, but that's something we will never know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 44. If I said mm-hmm. 40, it was, a, it was a slip. 44. Okay. In 40, uh, he was a pretty healthy man. One of the things that you talk about in the book regarding his health is the degree to which his uh, doctor, uh, Admiral McIntyre, uh, had become almost more a member of the Roosevelt family. And he was not really offering... 
uh, sound medical advice in terms of how Roosevelt was dealing with his uh, hypertension, his high blood pressure, and all these other problems that were really starting to take their toll by 1944. Well, uh, McIntyre wasn't the world's wasn't wasn't the nation's greatest doctor. Uh, <laughs> he violated his Hippocratic oath. Uh, he lied about his patient. He did not tell his patient how sick he was. Uh, Roosevelt didn't really want to know, even when Roosevelt uh, over McIntyre's objections uh, gets a full-time cardiologist who traveled with him secretly. Uh, still, Roosevelt never asked the cardiologist, we have his memoir, the cardiologist's memoirs, Dr. Brune, never asked him once any questions about his health. Roosevelt accepted what physicians told him. And uh, to a degree followed their advice. Uh, we don't know the details of Roosevelt's medical history about his heart very well for the period immediately before Dr. Boone took over because apparently Admiral McIntyre managed to lose the records. But apparently, McIntyre stopped taking Roosevelt's blood pressure when it began to get very, very high, many, several years before uh, the crisis that occurred in 1943-44 uh, occurred. Uh, we can't be sure of that, but what records we have... Uh, suggests that that's the case, although the, although the missing records, which would substantiate it, apparently do not exist. At least nobody has ever ever discovered them, and I think it's pretty clear that uh, the last time Dr. Brune saw, saw them was when he handed them to, Macin to Admiral McIntyre after he had made the last entry on Roosevelt's chart, which was his announcement or his description of Roosevelt's death. Uh, no one, to our, to our knowledge, has ever seen it since. Uh, what McIntyre did with it, and, and whether McIntyre was responsible for that, is what certainly I assume, but obviously I cannot prove, nor, nor can anyone else. Well, Roger, we've taken a, a lot of your time. Uh, before we end, I want to know if you're uh, working on anything new. Uh, yes, I'm trying to write a an article explaining more deeply than I do in the book uh, Roosevelt's mistreatment of Japanese Americans and why he did so. And I'm also writing a a, a further book. Uh, about the incarceration of Japanese Americans, and this time focusing on the 
camp at Tule Lake, which we, which my collaborator and I will describe as uh, America's worst concentration camp. That's a that's a that's a work in progress. I hope to have a manuscript in mid 2017. And thank you for asking. Oh, you're very welcome. And I know I for one will definitely look forward to reading it. Uh, well, on behalf of New Books Network and our listeners, I want to thank you for being on our show today. Uh, I really enjoyed it. All right. Uh, I've just been advised that uh, I made a misstatement. My wife is listening to this. Uh, I'm now 88 years old, not 87. I guess I'm an optimist. I want to make myself a, just a little <laughs> bit younger. I don't think there's any real difference in that. There was certainly no intent to deceive. And I appreciate your questions and your consideration leading up to this. Thank you, Mark, very much. Well, thank you very much.